This is TCE Theology and Current Events number 35, Four Years of Purgatory, The Key to Father Sizzik. So do you ever feel like a past sin is unforgivable? Or maybe you know that God can indeed forgive all sins in baptism or confession, but maybe you feel like a recent action in your life is irreversible. Do you ever wonder if God is really with you, having had such a hard life, where maybe you now blame yourself for a past vocational decision you think was wrong? Many of us feel that way about one of those things. We forget that divine providence is more like a GPS that can continually say recalculating than, say, a computer system where if one zero was a one or one one was a zero, the whole system is thrown off. We essentially rely on ourselves. My favorite account of this misunderstanding and conversion to true trust in God is the autobiography of St. Therese, but my favorite practical living out of this is a memoir that many of you are familiar with, He Leadeth Me, the memoir or autobiography of Father Walter Sizek. Now, Walter was a very orthodox Jesuit from the 20th century who was a missionary to the communist Soviet Union. Now deceased, he was a Polish-American born in 1904. He was then ordained a Jesuit long before Vatican II. This is back when many of the Jesuits were still made of titanium, not lavender fluff. Father Sizek was extremely mortified and wrote in another book of his, with God in Russia, why he had become this way. He said, quote, and I had to be tough. I'd get up at 4.30 in the morning to run five miles around the lake on the Semini grounds or go swimming in November when the lake was a little better than frozen. I still couldn't stand to think that anyone could do something I couldn't do. So one year during Lent, I ate nothing but bread and water for 40 days. Another year, I ate no meat at all for the whole year just to see if I could do it, end quote. Now, as most of you know, a mortified life is one where a person excels in fasting and physical pain in order to put the passions to sleep in order to live the fullness of the spiritual life. And Father Sizek was among the best in his Jesuit class. But here's the thing. Later in his priesthood as a missionary in the Communist Soviet Union, it turns out this extremely mortified life was not good enough to outdo the communists and their brainwashing techniques. Even someone as strong as him cracked under this communist brainwashing. One of the websites dedicated to his life explains this period in his life. Quote, He had undergone the first of many interrogations. Some were accompanied with rubber clubs, pressure devices on the head, starvation of his body, rubber tubes around his midsection, interrogation at all hours of the night, drugs in his bloodstream. And these first three months of solitary confinement and punishment were increased to six and a cellmate was added in order to obtain a confession. Finally, after severe, brutal mind manipulation by the Lubyanka interrogator and drugged by a medical doctor, Father did sign a paper of rigged confession. He describes this as one of the darkest moments in his life, and yet out of the darkness came a deep conversion, a conversion to do always the will of God. Confer he leadeth me, page 73. Several weeks later, on the 26th of July, 1942, he was summoned before a commissar at 2 o'clock in the morning. He had confessed and had been found guilty of espionage. Okay, now what's interesting to me is the fact that the communists had broken him on on his convictions, even if he had not directly denied Christ. This led him to a despair about his entire vocation, his entire priesthood, really his entire existence. This brought Father Sizek to the point where he thought of committing suicide there in Russia. 
But what follows in these next seven pages I'm going to read you, it's not a conversion of morals, but rather a conversion on abandonment to divine providence. And it's what we all need as we wonder where our help is coming from in these matters of church and state, or maybe even your families have turned against you. And that's why I asked at the beginning of this podcast, do you ever feel a past sin is unforgivable? Or more likely, do you maybe feel a recent action, maybe even a medical decision in your life is irreversible? Do you ever wonder if God is really with you, having had such a hard life, where maybe you now blame yourself for a past vocational decision that was wrong? Well, the answer to all those is that divine providence is not like that old magic eight ball from the 1980s where you yourself have failed on bad decisions, but rather divine providence is more like I said, that GPS that can always say recalculating. God is always recalculating the fight for you. So where we enter here, this is the summer of 1942 in a Russian prison camp. Father Sizik first cracked under their torture. And what you're about to hear is his triumph over the communist brainwashing that followed this first fall. But keep in mind as you listen, it doesn't lead to this happy life in the future, at least not at the external level. The following pages of Father Sizik learning trust the hard way, this actually leads to another 23 years in a Siberian prison camp, which of course are not going to be included in this podcast. But my point as you listen is trust in God doesn't make the exterior life easier, only the interior life easier. You will see as you listen how Father Sizek gains this interior freedom, and that's what we all need right now, more than external freedom, which may be taken away from us. We need the interior freedom. So here's the best seven pages I know of on reliance of God to obtain internal freedom. And remember, we enter these seven pages after his cracking under torture, but before his mental triumph over the communists. You know, I was surprised in my last TCE with Captain Emily that, that we both ended up talking about this book. That was unplanned. We didn't plan that on my podcast, which is why I thought this was so providential that I decided to make a whole TCE about these just seven pages of his conversion to divine providence in He Leadeth Me. The title of the chapter we enter here is Four Years of Purgatory, and we now read about his total conversion from being, from being an already tough and orthodox Jesuit priest to... Yes, still keeping those qualities. He's not going to tank those qualities, but now adding on top of those, his total trust in God's divine providence. Last thing to say before reading it to you. You may want to ask yourself right now before we start, where did God promise to be? Do I really believe the answer is, right where I am currently is where he promised to be? And so why do I ask this of you, my listeners? Well, the truth is that I personally admit this is so hard for me to believe right now, too, which is why I keep coming back to these seven pages that many of you are familiar with, but some of you are not. So please pray, as you always hear me say, that I can practice what I preach here because it's really hard on all of us. But I do want you and me to have the following on the go on this podcast or YouTube in the future when times get hard. So please remember especially so you don't have to hear my blabbing up to this point, or maybe you knew his story up to this point. The timestamp right now at 7 minutes and 25 seconds. Father Sizik writes on page 75 of He Leadeth Me. Then one day the blackness closed in around me completely. Perhaps it was brought on by exhaustion, but I reached a point of despair. I was overwhelmed by the hopelessness of my situation. I knew that I was approaching the end of my ability to postpone a decision, I could see no way out of it. Yes, I despaired in the most literal sense of the word. I lost all sense of hope. 
I saw only my own weakness and helplessness to choose either position open to me, cooperation, or execution. There had been no mention recently of the prison camps. The interrogator had been telling me he must make a progress report to his superior about my cooperation. He spoke of execution as if it were possible at their whim. It wasn't the thought of death that bothered me. In fact, I sometimes thought of death by suicide as the only way out of this dilemma. Illogical, surely, but despondency and despair are like that. Uppermost in my mind was the hopelessness of it all and my powerlessness to cope with it. I really don't know how to put that moment in words. I'm not sure even how long that moment lasted. But I know that when it passed, I was horrified and bewildered. I knew that I had gone beyond all bounds, had crossed over the brink into a fit of blackness I had never known before. It was very real, and I began to tremble. I was scared and ashamed, the victim of a new sense of guilt and humiliation. I had been afraid before, but now I was afraid of myself. I knew that I had failed before, but this was the ultimate failure. This was despair. For that one moment of blackness, I had lost not only hope, but the last shreds of my faith in God. I had stood alone in a void, and I had not even thought of or recalled the one thing that had been my constant guide, my only source of consolation in all other failures, my ultimate recourse. I had lost the sight of God. Recognizing that, I turned immediately to prayer and fear and trembling. I knew I had to seek immediately the God I had forgotten. I had to ask the help. I had to ask that that moment of despair had not made me unworthy of his help. I had to pray that he would never again let me fail to remember him and trust in him. I pleaded my helplessness to face the future without him. I told him that my own abilities were now bankrupt, and he was my only hope. Suddenly, I was consoled by thoughts of our Lord and his agony in the garden. Father, he had said, if it be possible, let this chalice pass from me. In the Garden of Olives, he too knew the feeling of fear and weakness in his human nature, and he faced suffering and death. Not once, but three times did he ask to have his ordeal removed or somehow modified. Yet each time, he concluded with an act of total abandonment and submission to the Father's will. Not as I will, but as thou wilt. What a wonderful treasure and source of strength and consolation our Lord's agony in the Garden became for me from that moment on. I saw clearly exactly what I must do. I can only call it a conversion experience, and I can only tell you frankly that my life was changed from that moment on. If my moment of despair had been a moment of total blackness, then this was an experience of blinding light. I knew immediately what I must do, what I would do, and somehow I knew that I could do it. I knew that I must abandon myself entirely to the will of the Father and live from now on in the spirit of self-abandonment to God. And I did it. I can only describe the experience as a sense of letting go, giving over totally my last effort or even any will to guide the reins of my own life. It is all too simply said, yet that one decision has affected every subsequent moment of my life. I have to call it a conversion. I had always trusted in God. I had always tried to find his will, to see his providence at work. I had always seen my life and my destiny as guided by his will, at some moments, more consciously than at others, I had been aware of his promptings, his call, his promises, his grace. At times of crisis especially, I had tried to discover his will and to follow it to the best of my ability. But this was a new vision, a totally new understanding, something more than just a matter of emphasis. Up until now, I had always seen my role, man's role, 
in the divine economy as an active one. Up to this time, I had retained in my own hands the reins of all decision, actions, and endeavors. I saw it now as my task to cooperate with His grace, to be involved to the end in the working out of salvation. God's will was out there somewhere, hidden yet clear and unmistakable. It was my role, man's role, to discover what it was and then conform my will to that and so work at achieving the ends of His divine providence. I remain, man remained, in essence, the master of my own destiny. Perfection consisted simply in learning to discover God's will in every situation and then in bending every effort to do what must be done. Now, with sudden and almost blinding clarity and simplicity, I realized I had been trying to do something with my own will and intellect that was at once too much and mostly all wrong. God's will was not hidden somewhere out there in the situations in which I found myself The situations themselves were his will for me. What he wanted was for me to accept these situations as from his hands, to let go of the reins and place myself entirely at his disposal. He was asking of me an act of total trust, allowing for no interference or restless striving on my part, no reservations, no exceptions, no areas where I could set conditions and seem to hesitate. He was asking a complete gift of self nothing held back. It demanded absolute faith, faith in God's existence, in his providence, in his concern for the minutest detail, in his power to sustain me, and in his love protecting me. It meant losing the last hidden doubt, the ultimate fear that God will not be there to bear you up. It was something like that awful eternity between anxiety and belief when a child first leans back and lets go of all support whatever, only to find the water truly holds him up and he can float motionless and totally relaxed. Once understood, it seems so simple. I was amazed that it had taken me so long in terms of time and of suffering to learn this truth. Of course we believe that we depend on God, that his will sustains us in every moment of our life, but we are afraid to put it to the test. There remains deep down in each of us a little nagging doubt, a little knot of fear which we refuse to face or admit even to ourselves that says, Suppose it isn't so. We are afraid to abandon ourselves totally into God's hands for fear he will not catch us as we fall. It's the ultimate criterion, the final test of all faith and all belief, and it is present in each of us lurking unvoiced in a closet of our mind we are afraid to open. It is not really a question of trust in God at all, for we want very much to trust him It is really a question of our ultimate belief in his existence and his providence, and it demands the purest act of faith. For my part, I was brought to make this perfect act of faith, this act of complete self-abandonment to his will, of total trust in his love and concern for me and his desire to sustain and protect me by the experience of a complete despair of my own powers and abilities that that had preceded it. I knew I could no longer trust myself, And it seemed only sensible then to trust totally in God. It was the grace God had been offering me all my life, but which I had never really had the courage to accept in full. I had talked of finding and doing his will, but never in the sense of totally giving up my own will. I had talked of trusting him. Indeed, I truly had trusted him, but never in the sense of abandoning all other sources of support and relying on his grace alone. I could never find it in me before to give up self completely. 
There were always boundaries beyond which I would not go, little hedges marking out what I knew in the depths of my being was a point of no return. God in his providence had been consistent in his grace, always providing opportunities for this act of perfect faith and trust in him, always urging me to let go of the reins and trust in him alone. I had trusted him, I had cooperated with his grace, but only up to a point. Only when I had reached a point of total bankruptcy of my own powers had I at last surrendered. That moment, that experience completely changed me. I can say it now in all sincerity, without false modesty, without a sense either of exaggeration or of embarrassment, I have to call it a conversion experience. It was at once a death and a resurrection. It was not something I sought after or wanted or worked for or merited. Like every grace, it was a free gift of God. That it should have been offered to me when I had reached the limits of my own powers is simply part of the great mystery of salvation. I did not question it then. I cannot question it now. Nor can I explain how that one experience could have had such an immediate and lasting effect on my soul and upon my habitual actions from that moment on, especially when so many other experiences, so many other graces had had no such effect. It was, however, a deliberate act of choice on my part. I know it was a choice I never could have made and never had made before without the inspiration of God's grace, but it was a deliberate choice. I chose, consciously and willingly, to abandon myself to God's will, to let go completely of every last reservation. I knew I was crossing a boundary I had always hesitated and feared to cross before, yet this time I chose to cross it, and the result was a feeling not of fear, but of liberation, not of danger or of despair, but a fresh new wave of confidence and of happiness. Across that threshold I had been afraid to cross, things suddenly seemed so very simple. There was but a single vision, God, who was all in all. There was but one will that directed all things, God's will. I had only to see it, to discern it in every circumstance in which I found myself, and let myself be ruled by it. God is in all things, sustains all things, directs all things. To discern this in every situation and circumstance, to see his will in all things, was to accept each circumstance and situation and let oneself be borne along in perfect confidence and trust. Nothing could separate me from him because he was in all things. No danger could threaten me, no fear could shake me, except the fear of losing sight of him. The future hidden as it was, was hidden in his will and therefore acceptable to me no matter what it might bring. The past, with all its failures, was not forgotten. It remained to remind me of the weakness of human nature and the folly of putting any faith in self. But it no longer depressed me. I looked no longer to self to guide me, relied on it no longer in any way, so it could not again fail me. By renouncing finally and completely all control of my life and future destiny, I was relieved as a consequence of all responsibility. I was freed thereby from anxiety and worry, from every tension, and could float serenely upon the tide of God's sustaining providence in perfect peace of soul. Filled with this new spirit and transformed interiorly, I no longer dreaded the next interview with the interrogator. I saw no reason now to fear him or the NKVD, for I saw all things now as coming from the hands of God. I was no longer afraid of making a mistake, since God's will was behind every development and every alternative. 
Secure in his grace, I felt capable of facing every situation and meeting every challenge. Whatever he chose to send me in the future, I would accept. The change in me, in fact, was so striking that even the interrogator noticed it. His newest proposal was that I might serve as chaplain in a newly formed army of Polish communists under Wanda Walileski, or perhaps as chaplain in General Anders' army, an army of free Poles formed to fight on the proposed second front. I told him quite simply I was willing to do either. He seemed genuinely pleased with the promptness of my reply and my new disposition. He told me that I seemed more relaxed and easy in my mind, as indeed I was, because the fear of making a mistake had left me now and I was conscious God was with me. I think he was suspicious, though, of this sudden change of heart. Good, he said. I'll tell the people upstairs that you are ready and willing to act as chaplain wherever you're sent. I'll let you know their answer as soon as I hear the next time I saw, saw him, however, he had a new proposal. He told me that the people upstairs wanted me instead to go to Rome and serve as an intermediary between the Kremlin and the Vatican. Now that the Soviet Union was member of the Allies, perhaps a sort of concordat about communism could be arranged. I agreed as far-fetched and as absurd as it all sounded. The notion of returning to Rome, to the free world, might in the past have excited me, but it was a measure of my new sense of abandonment that I was not the least excited by this offer more than any other. Whether I went to Rome or not was for God to decide, for him to arrange. I stood ready to accept any and all events as coming from his hand. Discussions of this Roman business took up many sessions with the interrogator, yet through it all I remained totally detached and perfectly relaxed. Naturally, the interrogator explained, I would not be alone in Rome. I would be part of a team, and there would be other information I would be asked to pass along, other details I would be expected to provide for transmission back to Moscow. Should I fail to do so, should I betray this trust, those with whom I worked would see to my speedy execution. Before I left Rome, there would be a month's training in certain techniques of espionage that I would probably need in Rome. Through all this, I remained at peace. Where before the notion of such cooperation would have upset me and tormented me, I felt no such distress any longer. If these things were to be, then they were to be, for a purpose God alone knew. If they were not to be, then they would never happen. My confidence in his will and his providence was absolute. I knew I had only to follow the promptings of his grace. I was sure, completely sure, that when a moment of decision came, he would lead me on the right path. And so it happened. When at last the interrogator asked me to sign an agreement covering the Roman business, I just refused. I had not thought of doing so in advance. In fact, I had simply gone along with everything up to that point. But suddenly it seemed the only thing to do, and I did it. He became violently angry and threatened me with immediate execution. I felt no fear at all. I think I smiled. I knew then I had won. When he called for the guards to lead me away, and I had no assurance but that they were leading me before a firing squad, I went with them as if they were so many ministers of grace. I felt his presence in the moment and knew it drew me toward a future of his design and providence. I wish for nothing more. <laughs>